Welcome to Resiliency Within, featuring your host, Elaine miller Karras. In unprecedented times, our beliefs and well-being are put to the test. When we take the things we've learned in life and look at challenges in a whole new way, we learn to develop resiliency, which can then be used to promote healing and personal strength. Now, here is Elaine miller Karras. Welcome to Resiliency Within. Today, I am so honored to have my friend, Cami Wolf-Rice, the founder and CEO of the Christopher Wolf Crusade on the show for the second time. And we also, as we were talking, we also uh, were, were aware that today is um, the beginning of National Fentanyl, Fentanyl, I can't say the word, Fentanyl, thank you, Awareness Month, as, as well as Mental Health Awareness Month. And these are two subjects that are very dear to both of our hearts. But today we are going to talk about her book, The Flight, which was published on September 18th, 2022. And that happens to be her son, Christopher's birthday. And, and as I think many of you know, that may have heard the first show, Christopher passed as a result of um, an opioid overdose. And we're going to talk about that and the things that she's learned and also very important strategies that all of us as a world community can learn to help our families, our community that we are, we know are facing this epidemic. But I was saying to Cami when, before we started the show, that I was reading the jacket of her book and I actually want to start with that. Um, she shares in the beginning that millions of parents are visited by the worst, by their worst nightmare, the loss of a child whether through sickness, addiction, accident, or suicide, the pain cannot be expressed in words. So she talks about struggling to connect this invisible suffering um, to a language others could understand. And Cami, I think you've done it in the book, actually. It is, it's really an easy read and it's so heartfelt and poignant. But she says these three words, and I thought this was, um, these three words are really important from the pain to the pen, to the purpose. And I know that you also um, met a, a man named Dennis Ross and the timing was right for him to help you with your story. And that he was, uh, I guess he, do you call him? He's your co-author um, that helped you really bring this story to light. So as I say that about the 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 cover, the jacket of the book, I want you all to go out and buy it. And it's, uh, and it's available at Amazon, Barnes and Noble, most booksellers, right? And also you have a website, Cami. What's the what's the name of the website again? Your personal website for the book? So it's camiwolfrice.com. And then it's also on cwc.ngo. And okay. just to mention also, uh, all the proceeds go to the charity. Okay. Well, and Cami, I am not surprised at that. You're a very generous and uh, person. And I just want to say also that She's lived in Atlanta for two, over two decades, and she serves on, on many local committees focusing on substance be, uh, uh, misuse and prevention. And she also is on the as a board chair for Usher's New Look Foundation, um, and a board member of the Cambodian Children's Fund and the Hope Movement Coalition. Um, but also, you had a big career. You were involved in finance. Um, you were a businesswoman before you started your philanthropic work. So I, I want you to know that she has just an amazing background. You can you can see more of her um, bio if you want to go to the Voice America Resiliency Within 
um, page and you can read more about Cami. And I also wanted to remind also our, our audience that we're also live on Facebook on Resiliency Within if you want to see us both as we're talking. So Cami, welcome. So what's on your mind as we start today? I am just excited to be here and to see you. I haven't seen you in so, you know, I guess I did see you a couple of nights ago on Zoom, but you know, um, no, I, I really appreciate this um, opportunity to, I never in a million years thought I would be an author. It was not a dream of mine, but now that after 18 grueling months, I'm so excited that it's out there and, you know, I'm getting such amazing uh, feedback from people and it's helping people most importantly. And that was the whole objective of the book is, is to hit the masses and to help people and provide resources as well. Well, today, what we want to talk about, um, you know, this is your second appearance on Resiliency Within, but we wanted to talk a little bit of, first of all, explaining to people what is the mission of, we're going to call the Christopher Wolf Crusade CWC from here on out, because it's a mouthful. So, but what the mission of the CWC is, and then we want to talk a little bit about what exactly is the life care specialist. And maybe we can talk a little bit about how we met, because it's kind of a nice story. So go ahead. Yeah, it is. It is. It's a great story. And I'm so blessed because I did meet you that day. But uh, do we want to start there or do we want to go with the book? What do you want to go with? Well, why don't you talk about the mission of the CWC? Okay, okay great. So, you know, with the opioid epidemic there, I like to call them swim lanes because there's so many things that need attention and help. And it took me two years to say the word overdose um, because I wanted Christopher to have a respectable death. And so I, I really, I realized I had to do something in order to get out of fetal position because I was kind of a, in shock and a zombie for two years. But once I realized how bad the stigma really is, I felt that I needed to come out, but I wanted to do something preventative. There's many, many treatment centers out there and, and I support and work with many excellent treatment centers out there. And it is so vitally important to have treatment. However, I felt this urge to stop it before it ever starts. And is specifically in hospitals, because if you look at Christopher's story, um, I basically said, I want to create a position in healthcare that I feel that's missing. It's And I based it on everything that Christopher didn't have when he was in the hospital those multiple times. And had he had this person there, and it's a character, it's a coach. Because if you look at our society, Elaine, we use coaches for everything, right? Yes. Have executive coaches, birthing coaches, sleeping coaches, workout coaches, baseball, football, tennis, you get the picture. Yes. But when you're in a health crisis, there's no coach to help you with pain management, to help you with your anxiety, your stress, your PTSD, depression, which most people in the hospital have all four of those things, right? And so I feel that, you know, I, I said, well, let, let's pick the most complicated thing to do. Let's let's create a new position in healthcare, um, which, you know, it, it's all about the data, right? You've got to have a clinical trial. Um, I'm proud to say that we have been published in four medical journals already at this point. So I know this position is so needed. And, and the goal is to have life care specialists in hospitals across the United States. Well, and let's talk a little bit about that because I think it's important. You know, some people see on the news, oh, we have an opioid epidemic. Sometimes people think, oh, there's these folks that have been involved in drug use for their entire life. It's, you know, some people still look at 
um, addiction um, or misuse as, as um, you know, they look at people that do that in really terrible ways, in a negative way. Um, your son had a surgery and he was given medications for the pain. And you were you ever told that this medication could be addictive? No, no. And this was right when the Oxycontin hit the market as the wonder drug. And, you know, quite honestly, doctors were told that it wasn't addictive by the pharmaceutical company, right? And so, you know, it, it, the, the difference is you're still here today. There's still nobody telling you about the opioids. Exactly. So There's- we have people in the hospital right now getting a prescription for opioid for the pain, and they have no idea that if they continue to use it, even as prescribed, that they could become addicted to it because it is such an addicting drug. It hits, hits those reward centers of the brain and it is hard to get rid of it because you have shared with me that your son really wanted to stop. Oh, absolutely. I mean, this was an AP student. This Christopher wanted to be a Navy SEAL. He was so disciplined, incredibly book smart, um, a healer. I mean, he wanted to help people. And this, these, I mean, we went home with 90 Oxycontins followed by 90 more, Elaine, and it hijacked his brain. And he fought it for 15 years, multiple treatment centers, and finally lost the battle. And so, you know, I, I say, you know, he went into the hospital with one disease and came out with another that ultimately took his life. Yeah. And so I think that when, you know, you hear this from Cammy, why the life care specialist is so important because your life care specialist, you, you call yourself coaches now, is you're there after people are having surgery because they may need an opioid in the very beginning, but you help them understand that it's addicting, that they can wean from it. And what, what kinds of strategies do you give to people in order to help them so that they can wean off of them? I just, if you could just say a couple words about that, I think that would be important. Absolutely. You know, and, and that's the thing I do want to make clear that there are situations, <clears throat> a car accident, whatever, that you might have to be on opioids. There is a time and a place for opioids. Um, and it was also originally for palliative care when you were on your last days before transitioning, uh, but it's gone, <laughs> the pendulum swing too far. So yes, at, oh, close to 70% in our trial of the patients didn't know what an opioid was or didn't realize that they were on one most of the time. So yes, I think it's more about educating people and giving them non-pharmaceutical, non-addictive solutions to pain. So the core of our training is the community resilience model. And, you know, yes. (laughs) My heart, as you know, is the key developer model. Yes. Yes. And that's, that's how we met. And it was a godsend to me because I was really looking for a model that would work at the patient bedside that patients that we could distract, right. And do brain distraction. So our core is the community resilience model, but we do uh, progressive muscle relaxation. Uh, We do aromatherapy. We even have been certified in music therapy. Uh, Music is huge for healing. So we, we really pull, we have a lot of things in the toolbox because not everybody, it's not one size fits all. You might 
be like number eight out of the box. You know, I might like to do music. You know, we all have different things that help each other. So it's, we have a lot of uh, things in the toolbox to use with each patient. And sometimes Elaine, people just need a listening ear. They want somebody to sit with them. And, you know, during COVID, they couldn't even have their family there. And so we had the life care specialists at bedside, you know, just to sit in the mud. And, you know, a friend of mine, Simon Sinek, he said, sometimes you need somebody just to sit in the mud with you. Don't clean me off. Don't try to fix me. Just sit here with me and be present. And a lot of times that's what they need. Well, and I think what's been shared with me by some of your life care specialists is the conversational resourcing. Well, what's helped you get through tough times in the past? And many times there's a there's a trainer in North Carolina. She talks about the the uh, resource trifecta: faith, family, and fur babies. I thought that was a pretty good thing to say. But but like you can sit down in a conversational way when someone's in the mud and talk about those things that are important in their life. It makes a huge difference. But I also, you know, you mentioned music, and I and I would kind of do want a little call out here because you have shared with me a very important person on your journey. And that was um, Grandma Tina. Mm-hmm. And you want to say a little bit about that? Because she was involved with music. She had a lot of pain and suffering in her life. But I think there's a kind of a very famous music person that's also connected to your organization and to her. Yes, yes. Um, she she lost three children. And so, um, you know, one of the cool things that I get to do and a very rewarding thing I've been doing for, I don't know, since 2009, uh, as I've worked with Usher's New Look and it's Usher, the performer, Usher Raymond. And um, when I lost Christopher, he's a dear friend uh, as well as has an amazing charity that's getting ready to be 25 years old next year, next year. Yeah. And we work with um, youth, you know, and we have a leadership program. But when I lost Christopher, Usher really was a strong friend. And he introduced me to his grandmother because she had lost three children. And I couldn't even fathom, like, how could this woman continue to walk on this earth after losing three children? Right. And she picked me up and she I can't even, I can't even explain everything that she did to help me get through writing my book. Uh, She was my biggest cheerleader and she gave me hope and, and really showed me the way that you can take your pain and turn it into purpose. And, you know, I want to say that, yes, I wrote a book. Yes, I started a charity, but I want to make it really clear to anybody out there that's suffering. When I say purpose, it does not have to be, it could be the littlest thing. It could be crocheting uh, hats for babies in the NICU unit at the hospital. It could be walking dogs at a at a local, you know, place for pets. It doesn't have to be a huge, magnificent, overwhelming task. Anything that brings you any kind of purpose makes your heart sing and makes you get up and be able to get out of that fetal position. And so I wanted to make sure and clarify that there's not this pressure to do this big, enormous thing. When we do purpose, it's any kind of thing that gives you purpose. It helps. And I I think one one of the things that you've shared with me on your journey is you've met so many parents who've lost their children in so many different ways that you almost have your own ministry now. As a result of that, do you want to say a little bit about that? Because that seems kind of intertwined in this purpose, too, of the CWC. Well, you know, it's like the life care specialist, um, that is Christopher Wolf Crusade. And then there's 
when I'm at the DEA or if I'm marching at the White House to bring fentanyl awareness or if I'm ministering to a mother that's just lost a child, I'm Christopher's mother. And, you know, so, yeah, I'm a CEO during the day and I'm trying to get this position going and I'm I'm business mode. But when I'm doing that work, I'm really doing God's work. And I know that um, Christopher did not sacrifice, you know, and die in vain. Like he 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 died and and God knew I wasn't going to sit down and he's given me this path to go to help others. And it's selfishly, it makes me feel so good, right? I mean, what kind of reward I get when I'm able to help another mother that's lost a child or a father, you know, or a brother or sister. And so that's my path. And and I'm very blessed to be able to do so. Well, from the first moment I met you, it was clear that you had a passion. I always say that, you know, passion, the root of it comes from passos to suffer, um, because I think all those ingredients are there for us to have that kind of purpose to create really a nonprofit organization and to do what you're doing with the life care specialist program. But also, I, I guess I want to also say that I really appreciate with all that you're doing, Cami, that you also, you know, you step forward with compassion and humility. And sometimes people don't necessarily step forward with humility when they have, when they're passionate about something, but to figure that all out, that doesn't mean that you're not a strong advocate when you need to be. But I think the humility when you're, you're mom to mom is I'm sure you, it has been very, a lot of meaningful moments with people, but I also want to share a little bit of how we met. So we were actually, it was right before the pandemic. In fact, um, I left Cami, I think um, after meeting you and I got on a plane and the next Sunday, the whole world shut down. And so we were at a training together. I purposely sat on the very back of the the room because I I was kind of I needed to have a compassion training. I had been working really hard and I wanted to be really invisible in terms of the kind of large work that I do in the world. And then this woman comes in late and somebody sits in my row. And guess who it was? It was Cammy. And so there were a couple things where we had to talk to one another, right? Some exercises. And through these conversations, well, we just learned that we had a lot in common. And so we both, we became, I guess, very visible to one another. Um, and that became to me the most important reason why I was there that weekend. Um, and we ended up having dinner almost every single night talking about our life journey and the similarities we had with painful kind of personal experiences, but also visions of resiliency and hope through suffering. And so as a result of that, I ended up writing the curriculum for the life care specialist program with the community resiliency model being at the center of it. But I mean, who knew? I didn't know I was going to do that. It was just something. And at the time I was like busy beyond belief, but it was, I knew from her passion and what she wanted to do that I could not, not be involved with it. So I thank you for seeing that. And we cut, we, we were there holding hands together, figuring out, okay, we mm-hmm. can do this. Well, you're being very humble, Elaine, because here's the thing. Let me tell you all the story. Slide came up and her picture was on this huge screen. And I look at the screen and I look over and there's like eight seats in between us empty. She's on one end. I'm on the other end. And I'm looking and I look at her and then I said, is that you? And I point up to the screen and she's like, yeah, 
yeah, that's me. And and then they proceed to go on with what she had done, right? And I'm sitting there and my voice in my head's going, okay, the minute we go on break, you need to stalk her. You need to go to her immediately, which I did. And then when I told her what I was doing, she said, well, actually I'm in Atlanta because I'm in, I'm an instructor, you know, I've, I've got this model and I'm going to be certifying instructors. And I was like, well, and she goes, it's sold out. And I was like, well, is there any way I can get in? And she was like, well, actually I'm the one that's teaching the whole class. So I think I can get you in. <laughs> That's right. You, and you, and you, you started the training the next Monday and we were there was a, a Thursday, Friday, Saturday at this training. Oh my gosh. That's so funny. Well, that's I forgot about that. Cause I wanted to be anonymous. And all of a sudden I see my picture and I'm going, well, I didn't know they were going to put my picture up there. Yeah, so anyway, it was, it, was, yeah. it was one of those things where we definitely needed to meet. And then, you know, from it, you know, I, I feel like what Cammie has done in being this incredible mover and shaker and bringing this forward. And she's mentioned it a little bit, but I'm wondering too, Cammie, I, it would be really good for people to hear about the research that's being done. Um, I, I'm, I have the honor to sit on the advisory committee for the CWC, and you have a lot of really amazing researchers and physicians and um, you know, Dr. Mara, I mean, they're doing amazing work. So we, we, can you talk a little bit about the research and what you're finding? Like you said, 70% of people did not know about opioids, but can you tell us more about what you're learning? Absolutely. Yes. Thank you. Um, and I appreciate you, number one, for sure, getting writing the curriculum model for the life care specialists, sitting on our advisory board. And you also talk about the life care specialist in your new book. So I mean, I do, I do. And I quote quote Bailey, one of your crim teachers who I believe is related to you. I love her. So yes, yes, yes. My niece. Yes. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's a great partnership and this is the thing, you know, we can't work in silos. We're trying to fight something so enormous that we need to all partner together. And I am, you know, again, so grateful for our partnership and what we have, you know, research, I think, you know, having the background that I have helped a lot with the project management, but you, it's so complicated to capture the psychosocial stories, you know, into a a clinical trial. So all of our, all of our research, you know, we're listed on clinicaltrial.gov. We are an official research. We've been published in four medical journals. There's going to be two more coming out very soon, which is a huge accomplishment. Um, but we had to do a lot of work in the beginning, a lot of interviews. I interviewed over 150 healthcare professionals and not only doctors and nurses, but deans of medical school, deans of nursing schools to really understand what I needed to do. And it's interesting. Everybody said, well, you know, this is so needed because nurses don't have time to spend, you know, they just don't have the time. I've had nurses come up and say, you know, with tears in their eyes, you know, I wanted to be a nurse so I could do those things that your life care specialist is doing. And I don't have time to do those things. So um, it was really, it's been an interesting um, learning experience doing the research. It's complicated, but you've got to have that data. The data is so critical to prove, you know, but when you really help somebody uh, do the littlest things, you know, how you capture that in a data format has been a super challenging. So I have a lot of stories that are attached to the data because you have to have the stories to understand it. Well, could you tell us a little bit about maybe one or two of the stories? I think that people would probably, I think it would be meaningful to hear about how this program is changing people's lives. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we are in um, a few different establishments. And so just, you know, HIPAA concerns, I'm just going to be very broad with the story. So this was a woman that was um, 
been, she was escaping a sex trafficker, right? And uh, jumped out of a truck to escape. And so she was badly, a lot of broken bones, um, mentally just distraught, you can only imagine, and very, very combative. Um, So the nurses could not get her to eat, could not get her to take her medicine. She was just there and she wouldn't say who she was. I mean, it was just a combative situation that they did not have the time uh, to to, to work with her. And so, first of all, just the first thing we did is the life care specialist just went in and sat, just sit there. And, and spend time. And, you know, when you're, you, you can build trust and establish, you know, a trust with that person and be that again, listening ear. Right. And so eventually she came around and started talking to the life care specialist. And it got to the point where the nurses would wait until the life care specialist was there to go in and administer her medicine or to give food or anything they needed to do because they wanted the life care specialist there to help to give that woman a safe zone, you know, a safety zone that somebody was there to help. And so that's a, that's an extreme story, but we have many stories where, uh, you know, somebody got shot and it was an accidental just drive by and got shot, you know, and the, and, or an accident, a car accident where the, you know, we were asking about, well, what's your, what gives you resource? And they said, well, my, my friend, my friend, my girlfriend, but my girlfriend died in the car accident that I was in and I survived and I'm feeling bad that I survived and she died, you know, those kinds of things um, that you're able to really use creme at that time. Right. And really help them with that anxiety. Exactly. And and when those kinds of things happen, which they do, we might ask a person, well, can you tell me about your girlfriend and what you loved about her? She's still a resource, even though she's lost, but that can be a way of conversing that actually can calm the person. They may shed tears, of course, but it's a way that really you're talking about connection. And we know that person to person connection when we're suffering is one of the ways where we can't take away all the pain because as you know very well, Cammy, there's no way to take all the pain away from losing Christopher, but there's these moments where a salve can be, could be put on where you can feel like there's a connection that you're being understood. And from what you've told me about what the, the life care specialists are doing, that's exactly what's happening. And I just love the fact that, I mean, the nurses need to learn some of the skills too, I think, which I think they are learning at Grady because we've just been training a bunch of people at Grady. But wouldn't that be wonderful if you had layers of people that were able to sit in that way in such a, maybe sometimes a short period of time to help Mm -hmm. people. So, um, so if you can, so have, are you still involved in the, in, in interviewing folks or, have you, you have enough information now to collect the data? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, so we've expanded. We're now in the sickle cell clinic. We just received a significant grant to expand into sports medicine. And then we got a million dollar grant to take it to rural communities. And we really believe this is the answer to healthcare for rural communities across the country. So we're going into four rural communities in Georgia. Okay. So what I'd like to do is I want to do a deeper dive into what you've just talked about. I mean, you're you're really branching out. I mean, rural Georgia, you're talking about, is it the national football? Is that what it is? I'm not supposed to say yet, but oh, yeah. Or so, oh, something or something. Organization. I don't know. I'm just wondering. Football organization. Football organization. But so, but basically you're talking about bringing something in as prevention and how important that is. So what we're going to do is we're going to take a break. 
excuse me, and after we come back for the break, I want to talk a little bit more about what exactly are the ingredients of what you're doing in rural Georgia, and also about how the Life Care Specialist Program is now going to be part of a university curriculum. If you could let us know about that as well. So we'll be back in just um, a couple minutes, and we will we'll further our conversation with Cami Rice Wolf. I mean, Cami Wolf Rice. <laughs> I always sometimes mix that up, and um, and hear more about incredible life care specialist and the Christopher Wolk crusade. And maybe while we're on break, you can go and buy her book called The Flight by Cammie Wolf-Rice on Amazon and other places. So go buy that book. And we're going to talk more about the amazing work of CWC in, in just a couple minutes. Follow Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. The Trauma Resource Institute is a nonprofit organization cultivating trauma-informed and resiliency-focused individuals and communities worldwide. Our mission is to take people from despair to hope. We believe in a world where every child and adult has the capacity to recover from highly stressful and traumatic experiences. Check out iChill, our free app that helps you learn the wellness skills of the community and trauma resiliency models. Go to TraumaResourceInstitute.com for more information. Elaine miller Karras' book, Building Resiliency to Trauma, The Trauma and Community Resiliency Models is available on Amazon.com. The book is about how to cultivate resiliency during and in the aftermath of traumatic experiences. The book also addresses body-based trauma interventions combined with psychoeducation about the biology of trauma and resiliency. Elaine also offers personal consultations. For more information, you can contact her at Elaine at ResiliencyWithin.com. Elaine miller Karras co-founded the Trauma Resource Institute, Incorporated. The Institute provides trainings on the models Elaine developed, the Community Resiliency Model, or CRM, and the Trauma Resiliency Model, or TRM. If you would like more information about the Trauma Resource Institute or how to participate in trainings, visit the Institute's website at traumaresourceinstitute.com. That's traumaresourceinstitute.com. Trauma Resource Institute. Build resilience. Awaken hope. Your life. Your health. Your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. This is Resiliency Within with Elaine miller Karras. To reach the show during our live broadcast, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to elaine at resiliencywithin.com. Now, back to this week's show. Well, welcome back to Resiliency Within. I'm here with Cammie Wolf-Rice. And we are talking about the nonprofit she started called the Christopher Wolf Crusade and her work, which is with life care specialists that are, and really it's an amazing idea that you had. And now you just got a very large grant to bring it into rural Georgia. So I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about what that's going to be like and how is it going to work? 
Yeah, thank you, Elena. I appreciate that. Well, you know, I, I met the dean of um, Mercer University, the dean of the medical school there, and she said it was so wonderful. She said, uh, "Do you realize that you have the answer to rural health care in America?" And I said, can you say that again really slow? And I would like to bring out my phone and record it. <laughs> and I'm going to show my husband so he knows that what I've been doing. <laughs> yes, yes. Let me show that to my world, Georgia. Yes. <laughs> yes, yes. And, and this woman has just been unbelievably supportive, just amazing champion. And that's, you know, that's the key, Elaine. You've got to find champions that in every in every space you've got to find people that are going to be your champion you know dr mara shanker at grady she's a chief of orthopedic trauma if i didn't have that in my you know you've got to have those champions everywhere uh to really <clears throat> make it successful and that's been at least my recipe that's worked really well um you know in the beginning i did have a few physicians really pushed me hard on the fact that I was not requiring a four-year degree. And I stood my ground pretty hardcore on that because I don't feel that you need a four-year degree. I think that you need compassion and empathy and a listening ear. And yes, you do have to go through training and you do have to pass exams to be a life care specialist and you do have to understand hospital compliancy and so forth and so on. But it does not require someone to have student loans for four years and then, you know, it, the, the, it just doesn't make any sense. So I think it's a similar philosophy that we have in the Trauma Resource Institute with our community resiliency model teachers, because I recognized long ago that there were so many, there was such a huge need for people to provide care because of the mental health care challenges that people had. There were not enough um, licensed clinicians to do that, but there were amazing natural leaders that if you taught them, and as you said, through training and through evaluation, that they could be strong um, individuals in their community, sometimes even more accessible than a mental health professional. And I'm a mental health professional, so it's not that I don't believe that mental health professionals are important, but I think that your idea is really key to how, why this is going to be successful with the wide, um, because it's such a huge problem. There's just not enough people unless we we train people like you're going to be training people and already have that don't necessarily have the four-year degree. And, you know, in the, in the rural community, you want somebody that is a trusted person that they know yes. and in, and everybody knows everybody in a rural community. So, so getting that right person is going to be so critical that they have that trust and that relationship established in that community. Uh, so I'm super, super excited about it. We're going to go in four hospitals, um, for, we're going to have two life care specialists in each hospital to get started. <clears throat> you know, of course, we want to plan to expand. We're also starting uh, with sports medicine. We'll be adding a telehealth component. So we will be actually talking to patients prior to surgery so that we can set a clear expectation. Look, you're going to be in pain. You're having surgery and you have to understand the aspects of pain. If your body doesn't know where to go to heal because it's numb all the time, how's it going to fix itself? Right. And, you know, I do get sometimes some 
you know, you get haters no matter what you try to do, <laughs> you know, that comment and say that I don't care about people with chronic pain. If you're listening and you have chronic pain, I absolutely care about you. Opioids are not sustainable. And I might be the messenger, but don't shoot the messenger. There are many things coming out that are non-addictive for chronic pain. They're ice, Vibracool, for example, it's ice and a vibration that distracts your brain. There's many other things, but opioids are not sustainable uh, for long-term use. And there's many, many side effects to that. And um, so I just thought I'd say that for the record. Well, well, and I think the other part about that is, is if some, if you're working with someone before they go into surgery and they have pain afterwards, when you have, when you have strategies like progressive relaxation or the community resiliency model skills, we have an app called iChill. They can listen to that and that continues to water their well being. And, you know, way back when, I don't know if I shared, I think I shared this with you, Cami, but I, I feel like I want to mention it again. We had a, a social worker named Lois Clinton at, at Walter Reed Military Medical Center. And so she worked in the, in the chronic pain unit. And so she saw that the, the CRIM skills were really helpful. And so what she did is when they did their assessment, they had a human body and the person always had to mark where they're feeling the pain. Well, she made a corresponding human body where they were to mark where they didn't feel pain. And that is really important, right? We've learned that because if we want to create new pathways for healing, we know that focusing and paying attention to your sensations of well-being can expand. It may not take away the chronic pain completely, but it certainly can turn the volume down. And we've seen that over and over and over again. So I'm, I'm so glad that you're going to be in the sickle cell unit because I know folks with sickle cell really live with chronic pain for for a lot of their life to have something else that they can do on top of it. So I'm really interested in you also maybe talking a little bit about that, but is there anything more you want to say about the, the, um, the life care specialists that are in rural, have they started already? Are they in the hospitals working? No, not yet. We are, we just finished working on identifying which hospitals, you know, we had to go out and meet the hospitals. We just received the grant not too long ago. So now we're just getting into the implementation and getting the curriculum online. So once we have that curriculum online, then they'll be able to go through that to get certified as life care specialists. So that's what I'd like to, for you to share with us about Mercer University and your association with them. And maybe you have people out there going, I want to be a life care specialist. How do I do that? So tell us about what you've done. So, oh my goodness, since the last time you were on the show, it was pretty amazing. <laughs> so, <clears throat> yes, in order, you know, again, the mission and goal that will be achieved is that we want life care specialists nationwide. And in order to scale, <clears throat> we needed to have an online curriculum and it's very module based. So for example, we have a module on addiction, you know, as substance misuse, we have a module on grief, we have a CRIM, you know, again, I'm going to keep that CRIM though, as a live interaction, you can't record that. But Mercer University, and again, this is from the support of Dean Sumner at Mercer, she, uh, was able to recruit the faculty there. And so we've got a pharmacist that's doing a piece on pharmacology. We have, you know, a psychiatrist doing a piece, you know, so every module is covered. Um, Elaine, you're actually on there doing a piece about, about the community. Yes, I do. Yes, yes. And so it's a combination of videos and slides, and they do have quizzes throughout each module um, that they take this course. And then, you know, of course, there's the in-person training that um, the CWC 
team will do in person where job shadowing and so forth that actually is inpatient in front of the patient type training as well. And is this going to be expensive for someone to become a life care specialist? How much does it cost? Well, if, um, let's see, I, I haven't figured out like, so as I told you right before the break, uh, we have, we're going through the process of getting all of the curriculum accredited. So it's CME accredited. So there's nurses and doctors and EMTs and firemen, and they need to do ongoing um, education every year. And so this will be accredited training. So, you know, unfortunately, there's not a lot of training in nursing school or in med school. So Dr. Schenker, as you've heard her speak before, she did eight years of med school and had no classes on substance misuse, which is frightening. And so the point is nurses and the, all these people that I just listed, they can go and I have to figure out the pricing on that. I'm still working on it and it's getting ready to go live. And I imagine it also is going to be depending too, if you have um, professionals, like you just mentioned, but if you have some of these natural leaders, that might be a sliding fee scale. I don't know. I know you haven't figured it out yet, but I can imagine that there's probably going to be a different we didn't talk that I was going to ask you this question. So I apologize for the answer. Oh, that's okay. But I kind of like that you don't know yet because you're kind of figuring it out, right? To make yes. it to make it fair. Yes. I mean, I definitely want to make it affordable for sure. I mean, I'm not looking at it as, I mean, we are training like um, for those of you that are listening that are familiar with peer specialists, those are people that are in recovery and they work a lot of times in an emergency department when someone overdoses. So we at CWC have been training peer specialists on pain management and crim, and crim right? They know all about addiction. They know all about substance misuse, but they don't know about you know the pain management techniques that we use and the crim model. So we're really, um, you know, it is helping to have that as a revenue base for CWC to be this training mechanism, which is great. Um, so we'll see how that goes. But yeah, right now I'm hiring all the life care specialists so that I can interview them and train them and kind of keep my hand on the pulse until we finish, you know, all the data, the research trials that we're well, in. I know the other thing I wanted to say that if someone wants to become a life care specialist, they don't call Mercer University, they contact CWC and right. you're the one who's going to be in charge of the application process. So we want to make sure that our audience knows they, they, they go to the cwc.ngo and that's Correct. where they get the, start the application process. Okay. Perfect. Absolutely. So now can you tell us a little bit about the sickle cell um, unit of the hospital and what you're doing there? So, you know, we, we chose sickle cell because they are, you know, they've been on opioids again for a long time because of the chronic pain and they really have had little to no uh, education on opioids and Narcan, which is so important. And they need as many different alternative techniques to deal with pain as possible. So we really felt that that was a good place. And, you know, we're, we're doing, we're making a lot of headway. It's been great. It's fantastic. Um, It happens that at the, uh, at the sickle cell unit at Grady, it's the largest sickle cell clinic in the United States. So we hope that all of our work can expand and, and, and be a path to go national with that as well. So, you know, it's, it's just been, it's taking a life of its own, kind of like my book did, you know, my book just kind of took a life of its own and it ended up being so much more. I mean, it's, it's, 
you know, not to skip channels, but, you know, we're basically doing all the things that we're doing in the Grady Hospital at Sickle Cell, the same techniques, the same. It works for anybody, right? Anybody that's dealing with any kind of pain needs to learn all those skills. And, you know, it's interesting. I don't even know. Well, I did tell you about this at the advisory board. So we we took some of the modules out of the life care coach and we put together a care coach certification. And so with Usher's new look, we taught college students. We taught them about fentanyl and Narcan and suicide prevention and what to do if somebody reach out, reaches out to you that's struggling. And we taught them to be creme guides, you know, so we basically come, we've, we've taken some modules and then it's called a care coach certification. And we're rolling that out just slowly, you know, because we've got so many things going, but I wanted to share that, you know, with Usher's new look and with the kids. And and I hope that that just, you know, takes a life of its own. And I think that this is where I think, again, those kids aren't, they're not even in college yet, maybe, or maybe they're just starting college or they're, they're not deciding to go to college, but you're helping them understand about fentanyl. You're also helping them learn skills that they can use for themselves and also with others. I mean, this is the kind of groundswell for scalability if we're going to make the impact. And I want to use the word scalability because that's, I think you and I are both interested in that. If we only keep the, the keys to the city within a few people's hands, then we're not going to reach as many people that's going to, to need to have these skills. Because it's not only, I mean, you're peer specialist, but I'm thinking about, you know, parents, teachers. I mean, there's a whole other slew of individuals that are grappling with this fentanyl challenge that we all are facing in this country and what to do about it. So I know that your your brain's always spinning like mine, Cami, <laughs> in terms of the latest idea. And I'm I'm glad to hear that, you know, you're also expanding and people are are noticing. But there is, I want to go, I, can we segue back to the research? Because you said there's four publications already. Two more are waiting to get published. But what are the results? What are you finding? Um, is there a reduction? I mean, if you can tell us some of the results that have been happening from the research that's been um, done so far. Yes. Well, most importantly, we have a 25% opioid utilization decrease upon discharge from the hospital, which is fantastic. We're also showing that um, when a hospital, if you're discharged from a hospital and in that 30-day window after you're discharged, if you go back to the emergency room for pain, insurance doesn't cover it and the hospital has to eat that bill. So if we're educating people on how to do and deal with their pain and manage their pain and they don't come back, it doesn't strain on the hospital and our healthcare system as well. So you have to show an economic improvement for hospitals you know, included in that, right? Because there is the money element. Um, but yes, 25% opioid utilization, right? I see the prescription writing going down substantially, which is great because there is the PDMP database where doctors now, you know, are red flagged if they're over prescribing. And I think doctors are, are becoming more aware um, and, and are writing less pill prescriptions, which is very good news. They're also doing a lot with before it, during your surgery, not using opioids in some cases and doing freezing and things like that and getting very innovative on what they do before your surgeries to not pump you up full of opioids. So, um, but as I said, you know, 
close to 70% people didn't understand all the different names for opioids, right? Because there's so many different names. There's Percocet and Oxycontin and Oxycodone and, you know, so really just educating people on, on opioids and, and also educating them that, hey, you know, you're, Teenagers going to have to have their wisdom teeth pulled out. They don't need 30 Percocet from a dentist. They need um, Motrin and ice. And not to say every dentist overprescribes, but some do, right? And it's not necessary. It's simple things. And many, many people don't know about Narcan. And Narcan literally tells your lungs to breathe in an overdose situation. Oh, can you talk a little bit more about Narcan? Because I understand that a lot of people don't know about it. And how important it is, because I even see people saying, oh, we shouldn't have Narcan available to people. They need to just stop using the drug. Well, as we know, that doesn't happen. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, that makes me cringe when I hear people say that. Um, because they do, sadly. Yeah, I mean, you, you, you know, would you say, would you hand an oar out to somebody that was drowning? You know, would you, would you throw a life jacket out? Would you try to help somebody drowning right in front of you? I mean, we're none of us are God to decide when somebody dies or not. And if you can help them to not die in an overdose situation, I mean, the deal is with fentanyl is. First of all, it's not an overdose per se, it's a poisoning. So for example, somebody could be working at a restaurant, they're saying their back hurts and another employee says, oh my gosh, I got a Percocet from a prescription I had, do you want it? And they don't know where it came from. It's not maybe intentionally. They got it from a friend who got it from a friend and it's poisoned. And that's the thing that, you know, people have experimented with drugs, people taken prescription drugs for pain for a gazillion years. The difference is the street drugs are now poisoned. It's in Adderall, it's in Oxycontin, Oxy, it's in Xanax. Okay. It's in so many things. So, you know, Can people- you pause for just a second is what's happening is that they're getting medications on the street, like let's say Xanax, but it's being laced with fentanyl. Is that what's happening? So that they think they're just going to get chill. And then all of a sudden there's a reaction. And what I heard, cause I know we had uh, in, in our office, we had our secretary, she had two people in her family um, die from overdoses and they didn't know what they were doing. It was, they were taking something else that it was laced with. Mm-hmm. It was such an accident. And that's, I think that's one of the reasons why we're seeing this all over the place. Cause you you have one thing that's actually, like you say, killing you. Absolutely. Um, let's, let's, that example is a great one. And then college students, you're going to take an Adderall because you've got exams and you need to stay up all night. You need to stay focused studying for your exams and you take an Adderall and it's been laced with fentanyl and you're dead. And there was a mom that I met at the DEA meeting and she had a slumber party for 14 year olds. These were not partiers. Okay. These were 14 year olds in the basement. They had somebody reach out on Snapchat and said, you're going to, you know, you can take this Skittle and you'll dance all night and you're going to sing and you won't stop laughing. And it's so fun. And they just kept hitting the kid's phone. And she went down the next morning, they had delivered the drugs to her house. Every kid at the summer party was gone, dead. And no. this, so when you say- 14 people, children, 14. They were 14 years old and there 14. was a summer party. 
I think there was four of them. Four of them. Um, oh gosh. And they were all gone. And this is Snapchat reaching out to our young people and kept, I mean, because they took, you know, they researched on the phone and it, it just kept pinging these kids. You know, you can dance, you can sing. And they delivered it to the house. The mom didn't even know. These kids weren't even driving. So when people say, let the addicts die, well, first of all, uh, but um, secondly, you know, the, this fentanyl is killing people in many, many different ways. And I want to clarify also, if you were to give Narcan to somebody, first of all, it's a nasal spray. If you were to give that nasal spray and let's say they weren't overdosing because people ask me all the time, but what if I, what if I messed up and they're not overdosing? If they weren't overdosing and it's something else, the Narcan would not hurt them. Now, sometimes the fentanyl has been so strong that you have to have multiple administrations of the Narcan. So you have to have three or four. I've even heard of five times because the fentanyl now is becoming so much stronger. So it is the DEA. This is not Cami saying this, the DE, well, it is me now saying this, but the DEA said our country is under a chemical warfare attack, period. People should know Narcan like they know the word COVID. So, I mean, I know that there is a hope. I mean, it is now being released so that it can be easily accessed. Is that true? Can you say a little bit about if someone's listening saying, well, where can I get that? I'm so worried that my son could be using opioids or my mm -hmm. daughter, some family member. It's Would over the counter now. It just was FDA approved. It's over the counter now. I know like the Chicago train station, they're going to be putting vending machines out. I know in many different states, they're putting vending machines out, but it is now over the counter. They are trying to get uh, you know, EMTs to get it for free. There's a lot of grants that are going out to get it out to everyone. Uh, to me, if, you know, it, you sh everyone should own it. And if you don't own it for your own family or your own young person, you know, have it, maybe it's for their friend that you're going to save a life for, right? Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I can't, the, our time has quickly ran away from us. We only have a few minutes left. So, you know, I really want you to say, you know, are there some parting thoughts that you would like to leave our audience about, you know, your book called The Flight, mm -hmm. your, your wonderful son, Christopher, mm -hmm. and the work that you're doing? What, yeah. what would you like to say to our audience as we're getting ready to close today? Thank you. Um, yeah, the book, The Flight, My Opioid Journey, uh, I did this book so I could reach the masses. I'm really trying to save other people's lives, but it really became so much more. I talk about my home invasion. I talk about the shame of divorce and letting that go and forgiveness and compassion. And it's really a lot more than just my journey. It really allows the reader to think of their own journey. And so, it, like I said, it took a life of its own. I highly recommend um, it obviously with the QR codes. I have a QR code after every chapter where I come on video. I talk about things that you just couldn't add in the book. And then there's the resource library. And I have a music playlist in the back as well. well and I want to say the resource library is on page 179. Better go out and get that book so you have it. And um, Cami, thank you so much, my friend. I'm so impressed by everything that you've done. And again, with your humble heart um, and your great passion and advocacy. Um, I thank you what you're, for what you're doing in the world right now, because I think it's, it's changing our world and it's going to continue to do so. So remember audience, the flight. And, you know, I often end with the statement, what else is true? Mm -hmm. And again, I, I love this from the pain to the pen, to the purpose, how we started. Mm 
So namaste from one soul to the other soul. Yes, dear. So glad that our, our seeking of compassion brought us together a few years ago, and it continues. I love you, dear friend. Love you. So until we meet again, audience, um, I look forward to next week and the week after. And please remember what else is true. And take a look at this book if you're suffering. I think it will help. And it will help you. Till we meet again, Lane Miller Karras signing off. Thank you so much for joining us this week for Resiliency Within. Please tune in again next Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Elaine Miller-Karras, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll talk again soon. Resiliency Within with host Elaine miller Karras is brought to you by Trauma Resource Institute Incorporated. Visit TraumaResourceInstitute.com.